One of the profound tensions that we feel as the people of God is we have this sense that we know God is with us. We talk about that on Sundays every week. God is with us. God is present. God is near to us. And yet we also look around at the world and it doesn't always look that way. We feel both God's presence and God's absence in our lives. Now, of course, God's presence is not dependent on our feeling of him. Our God is with us in ways that we don't feel. Sometimes it's actually even the feeling of absence, especially the church father spoke about this, that it's the feeling of absence or longing that actually points us to the truth that God is with us because we have that longing. We have that sense of need for God. But there are some ways in which we know this can't be all that there is. <laughs> the world as it is, as we look at it, and the headlines, and um, just the brokenness of our own lives and of the world, we, can't, we go, that can't be everything. We don't yet see God's kingdom in fullness. And in those moments, we're called to patience, which is so challenging. At the same time, God is always surprising us, upending us. So we turn the corner and we find God in unexpected places and unexpected ways. And what that does is it prevents us from formula, formulizing God's presence. That we go, if I act this certain way, then I can conjure God up or I can get God to work for me. No, God's always surprising, upending us. At the same time, he's promised to be present with us in some unique ways that we can feel confident that in these particular ways, God is present in a, in a specific sense. So when we gather, the scripture says, we can trust God is here with us. In the sacraments, we can trust that God is with us. With the poor, the marginalized, God is there. But even in those moments that we know, even in those moments, we know God is not present because we did something. We earned something, we made something happen, but simply by God's grace, because it is in God's nature to dwell and to desire to dwell with his people. Our Old Testament reading that we read a few moments ago takes place after Jacob has fled from his brother Esau, and he's headed to seek out a wife in Aram at the urging of his parents. And it says, Jacob has come to a certain place. Another way to say that is he came to a random place. There's nothing special about this place. There's no history here. There's no name we can even attach to it. There's no sign of God's activity in this random place. It's just random. In fact, he's not even really in a place. He's in between places. He's going from one place to another, and he comes to a certain place. In fact, the word place is repeated six times in our reading. Jacob is also penniless and alone in this random place. He's groaning. He's longing for the inheritance he was supposed to live into, that he was supposed to be the promise carrier, that he was supposed to be the one who carried forward the mission of God's family. But his life is now threatened, and he's isolated. And it's illustrated by an interesting fact that Jacob has nowhere to lay his head except for a rock that he found. That sounds really uncomfortable. <laughs> but to add to the randomness and the isolation Jacob's not trying to meet with God. He's not seeking an encounter with God. He just wants to run away from his brother. That's all he's trying to do. In this place, random, penniless, without agenda, God meets him. In his vulnerability, the ultimate vulnerable state, he goes to sleep and God meets him in a dream. 
Perhaps it is exactly in places of vulnerability, empty-handedness, weakness, places where we're free from agenda that we are most inclined to hear the voice of God. A random place is turned to a sacred space. Jacob sees in this dream a ladder where a ramp is another technical definition, extending from the ground to heaven. It says angels are going up and going down. They're ascending and descending. And the Hebrew likely speaks to a ramp that would be like um, something like a Mesopotamian ziggurat. So in the ancient world, they had these buildings that the people would have been familiar with. And it was this pagan practice of building a ramp to get to God or to get to the gods. But this ramp is different from a ziggurat. Heaven and earth are connected in a unique way, and the Lord is on the ramp. So Jacob has not built something. He's not accomplished something. Hey, I built this tall ramp like the Tower of Babel, or I built this building that I can get up to heaven. No, God's already there. There's already, as Walter Brueggemann says, there's already traffic between heaven and earth. They're already connected. This is not something Jacob has done. Jacob's not alone. Heaven's here. And that's the good news for us today that God is with us. God is near. It's not up to us to make that happen. God appears to Jacob and he promises to bring him back to to his land in peace and prosperity, that he will never leave him and that he will be faithful to his promises. In other words, there's something beyond what Jacob is facing at the moment. He's running away from his brother, but God says there's something bigger than this. There's a new future. There's a new reality beyond what we can see. And it's new, but it's actually not new because the same promise was given to his father and to his grandfather and even to him before. It's not only that God made him special or set him apart, but he has a calling for the sake of others. It says here, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by his people, by Jacob's people. Jacob awakens from his sleep and says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Surely the Lord was in this place, is in this place, and I did not know it. God's space and our space are interconnected. God speaks, God works, God is in our midst. The point of Jacob's ladder is summarized in God's words to Jacob. First, he says, I am with you. Second, I will keep you. So the first promise is about presence. I'm with you, I'm near. The second promise is about action. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will hold to you. And the third is I will bring you back to this land. Jacob calls this place Bethel, which means God's house. His empty handedness is the place of God's activity. God has met him in his sleep, in his vulnerability, in his weakness. So Jacob takes the stone that he slept on and he sets it up as a marker or an emblem of God's activity in this random place. You could think of it as, I'm going to set this up as a marker that God works in random places. God is with me. I think it's fascinating. The early church fathers read this story and they saw Jesus all through the story. They tend to do this. So as they read the Old Testament, they read the story and you're going, oh, this is a great story about a patriarch. And then the church fathers are like, Jesus is the rug on which he's standing or something. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? But it's beautiful. It's amazing. So here's what he says. Jerome says, the stone on which Jacob rested, rested his head is Christ. 
the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. Oh, that's cool. Jacob's dream emerged because he didn't rest on his own comfort and safety, but he rested in the Lord. John Chrysostom said that the Lord acted in this way because he saw Jacob was free from all human pretense. So he didn't have any agendas. So God acted in that weakness. Other of the church fathers like Augustine and, and Bede saw the church as the ladder or the, the ramp. So the church is that ramp, that place where heaven and earth meet and the Lord is standing at the top of it. The Christian here, each of us, is invited to know that God is with us in the random, in the confusing times and in our most vulnerable moments. And because of this, we have a hope that our current circumstance is not the end of the story. How often do we live our lives with our guard up, performing or preparing to perform, excelling or striving to excel, making sure we look right, act right, even seek God right? The good news is God appears to Jacob in a dream a place where Jacob is seeking nothing but his own survival. So I think the good news for us in this is when we get to the places where we're at the end of our rope, we get to the point of exhaustion where as a parent we feel lost or we feel muddled in a relationship or we're sputtering in our career when we just get to that place where I just can't juggle one more thing when we don't know the way out of our current circumstances, in those moments, we're reminded we're not alone. We can trust. Now, this is good news, but it's bad news for those of us that really like to be in control. If we, if we really like just being fully in control of our lives, of being able to manipulate it to make things happen, this doesn't feel like good news because <laughs> this is the call to surrender to empty-handedness, and that's the opposite of what we think we want. But we have a great hope that God is working in the raw materials, in the midst of the chaos, even when we can't see it. Our gospel reading speaks to this. Jesus tells a parable about wheat and tares, and it's a parable of patience. Patience and process are central to the kingdom of God. We see this in that part of God's nature is God is patient with us. This is illustrated in how Jesus' life, as we look at the life of Jesus in the scriptures, unfolds like a flower. It's like a seed growing into a plant. So think about this. Jesus was proclaimed to be king before his birth, declared to be the son of God at his baptism, and yet it's not until his death that he is inaugurated as the king of the world. And he reigns at the right hand of the Father. His kingdom, even today, is still an unfolding reality. His authority is not yet fully known. And even the world, as we look at it today, we go, okay, Jesus is Lord. Nothing else is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. The, the other things that place themselves up as Lord are not Lord of the world. But it doesn't always look like that. It's unfolding. I love how Paul uses this image of adoption. He does it several places, adopted into the family of God. And when I think about the unfolding kingdom of God, I think about our adoption journey and our adoption process. In some sense, I look back on Lucy's story and our story, and I believe that Lucy was our child from the beginning, that 
in God's heart before time, God chose to place her with us. So there's that sense, that deep sense. And yet, from our perspective, there are stages that unfolded. So first, we were chosen by Lucy's birth mother. Then Lucy was born, and we were blessed to be in the hospital room when she was born and all of that. She was born and went home with us. And yet I remember, so frustrating after that time, that after she was born and we cared for her and took her to doctor's appointments, everywhere we went, we had to carry around these papers that said we were temporary guardians of her. And I remember that used to make me so frustrated (laughs) because I would go, we need different papers that say we're not temporary guardians, but it was just the legal process. It was unfolding that we had to carry around these papers. It took a very long time for our adoption to be finalized and the judge to declare Lucy is part of this family and she has this new name. So she was always part of the family. Again, I believe from the foundations of the world, right? And yet we needed patience to see it completed. Another way to think about this is if you garden at all. I don't, but but Ashley does. Uh, She loves to garden and she grows tomatoes in her garden. And I remember a few years ago that Lucy would just get so tempted to pluck those tomatoes. Like they'd grow up just a little bit and she's like, a tomato, she'd grab after them. So there was this period of time where we had these little bitty tomatoes all around our house that were never quite ready to be plucked, but our impatient little one had to pluck them all, right? The patience is so difficult for us because we live in such a fast-paced world. I'm old enough to remember, I'm gonna sound like really old guy here, but I'm old enough to remember a time where you had to wait a week before you could watch the new episode of a TV show, right? And if you missed it, you just missed it. Like you just, you didn't watch that one, right? I remember when Ashley and I did our first binging of a TV show was in our, at our honeymoon in 2006. We watched all of the episodes of Lost, okay? We were catching up on Lost. You guys are laughing at me now. And at that time, you had to pay $1.99 per episode and then wait for them to download, which just took forever. So we'd go into iTunes and pay $1.99 and we'd download them. So, of course, we did for every single episode. Now I can't imagine doing such a thing because that was just crazy. But it's difficult now to live our lives in patient expectation because we are used to, we want to see everything in fullness. We want to see everything right now. And this is true in good ways and on larger scales. It's true when we think about injustice or the sins of others or when we experience betrayal in our life. We usually either, when we respond to this, we say, I'm going to take matters into my own own hands and I'm going to rush to get what I want right now. Or... We just give up, say, yeah, this is just the way the world is. Why won't God fix it all right now? Our epistle reading reminds us that creation itself groans, that sin doesn't just affect each of us individually. Sin has broken the world. So creation itself is longing for restoration, eager in anticipation. The message translation says, The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. The world longs and groans. The whole part of the Christian life is not simply to make an individual decision or to cross a threshold into heaven. It's also not just to have a nice moral framework to live a more peaceful life. The Christian hope is for the world restored fully and completely. 
But if I'm honest, I don't really want God's judgment and healing all at once. I think I do. I rightly long for justice and healing and the world made right, the lion lying down with the lamb, swords beaten into into plowshares. But if God's kingdom came today, all at once, it would actually mean God's judgment on me too. (laughs) It would mean that God would reveal my stuff, that God would correct or change where I have accepted counterfeits. We like the idea of judgment for everybody else, but judgment for me? Can't I just live the way I want to and everybody else be judged? Or maybe can can God just fix everybody else and and get them all right, but be patient with me? (laughs) This is why anytime we talk about judgment, anytime we approach in scripture, scriptures of judgment, we have to look first at ourselves, not at other people. So that's why our Psalm is so powerful. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Because the truth is God is patient and loving all the way through, and gives us space to be compelled by his love and his goodness. The end of the passage speaks of judgment and fire. This is the kind of passage that hellfire preachers love and from which many of us recoil. Judgment is real. God is putting things right, setting things right. And it's possible to describe God's judgment in terms that don't fit with his character. But God cares too much about the world to leave it as it is. And God cares too much about the world to simply cast off the broken ones and not seek their healing. Process is a beautiful thing. In fact, process is a sign of God's love. He walks with us through death's valley. He reminds us of his presence. The ultimate sign of impatience is rushing to judgment, trying to say, no, God, I'm going to judge this right now because God's, God's taking too much time. So in this parable, Jesus is calling out some Pharisees who believed that the kingdom of God would only come when people were sufficiently holy or they looked set apart. So this means separating from all the people who didn't meet those standards. Prostitutes, tax collectors because they worked for Rome and they tended to be shady, Gentiles because they weren't part of God's people, and sinners. So you can understand the frustration of these Pharisees who think if we just get holy enough, then that's going to bring in God's kingdom. Their frustration when Jesus starts hanging out with all those people. In this parable, Jesus is reminding them that only God knows what is wheat and what is weed. Only God fully knows who is part of his kingdom and who is not. And this doesn't mean, of course, that we turn a blind eye to evil. Certainly not. It's right to look at our world and go, that looks like wheat. That's good. Or that looks like a tear. That looks uh, weedy. But we can respond to those who express that in their lives, that brokenness, not with separation or condemnation, but with love. Because we can live out God's process. The kingdom of God always leaves room for forgiveness, repentance, and mercy. We don't rush to judgment. We don't call balls and strikes, wheat and weeds on our own because we know that we ourselves struggle with sin. In this sense, I I don't even think it's our job to purify the world or to purify the church. This parable says that's God's job. 
Our job is to trust the process and to call others into that life. Now, of course, there are times where we have to set boundaries on relationships. We can forgive and love someone and still trust and still not trust them to speak into our lives or to even be in close relationship with them because of past behavior. That's appropriate. But even the very action of boundary setting is an act of trust because it's saying God is working in their lives even if I am not in the same way. That God can work with them. Now, does this mean we just sit back and trust God's going to sort everything out so I don't need to do anything? No. But it does change the attitude by which we act. We do not act as if we have the pure and absolute view on which this is wheat and this is weed. And we don't act as if we don't have any weediness in ourselves. Patience allows us to be fully present with the pain of the world because we trust in the God who is purifying us and purifying the world. I'll end with just these few words. Each of our stories point to the necessity of empty-handedness, of trust, and coming to the end of ourselves. This is the appropriate posture for the Christian. I think we are so often tempted that when we see a problem, it's we have to take matters into our own hands, and we don't operate first out of trust in the one who loves us and loves the world beyond our capacity to love. The call of the Christian is not for aloofness or pretending like evil doesn't exist, but it means our lives are characterized by trust rather than fear that we're not doing enough or frantically trying to make things happen. There is traffic between heaven and earth. God is at work. We are not alone. And we groan and creation groans because our hope is sure. In South Africa, after apartheid, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was established to hear all the stories, to hear all the pain, and begin the process of making things right. And the goal was exactly what it said, truth and reconciliation. So we want to know what's true, what's real, and then through that, we want to begin to bring people together. After truth is discovered, there has to be a moral judgment. There has to be somebody that says, that thing that happened to you is wrong. You can't have reconciliation without truth. And without the desire for reconciliation, truth can be hollow. You know this in your families. Like when your spouse comes home and has had like a terrible day and feels like a failure and doesn't think life is going anywhere, her boss has shamed her, her coworkers don't like her, the customer yelled at him, they pour out their heart to you. And what happens when we try to say, oh, I listened to a great podcast, there's four steps you need to follow and then your life's going to be better. That doesn't work out too well, does it? (laughs) Unless they ask for your help, that does nothing because we first have to enter that pain to hear that truth. God is with us in pain over and over again in the Bible. This is what God does and who God is. And there's a difference between trying to fix and trying to heal. Fixing rushes in, declares judgment, demands restitution. Healing enters pain and is willing to do the hard work, not just of declaring, but of restoration and reconciliation. In Christ, we haven't just been fixed. We've been healed. 
When we live in patience, it opens the door for us to be present with pain, not explaining it away or trying to fix it. We can trust in the deeper work while we listen for the voice of the Spirit. As Christians, we are to move towards healing and resist evil. That's part of our baptismal vow, is we we turn away from evil and we turn towards Christ. But we always do so with humility, knowing that God is faithful and the harvest is certain. Amen.